You know, your purpose keeps you on track. It keeps you, even if you get pushed off track, which you will. And this is again part of the resilience. You know, your purpose can be challenged, and you can be you can be knocked off your uh, your, your your direction of travel. Purpose will bring you back. Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome back to the Payroll Podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JJ Recruitment Group, specialist payroll recruiters. Now, whether you're listening to this for the first time or the hundredth time, please let me take this opportunity to say thank you all for joining me today on the show. And of course, please do share this payroll podcast with all of your payroll colleagues, friends and anyone else you know who may be interested in all the latest insights and information that is influencing the wonderful world of payroll. Now today I am super excited to be joined by Andy Nicholl. He's a former British Lion and Scotland international rugby captain, member of the BBC sports team and CEO of Abstract, an award-winning learning and development company specialising in leadership and decision making. And today we're going to be talking all about building modern day resilience. This is something that I know is an essential skill for all payroll professionals. Never before was your resilience tested more than the recent pandemic. And you've come through with flying colours. So I'm sure this is a skill that many of you have already acquired. However, I want to find out exactly what it takes to master resilience in the modern world. So in today's episode, I'll be asking Andy about his experiences as he transitioned from elite sport to the media and then to the business world through his journey from the changing room to the green room to the modern day boardroom. Now, for those not familiar with Andy's sporting prowess, he won 23 caps for Scotland. He was captain of Bath Rugby when he became the first British player to lift the Heineken Cup in 1998. He even captained Scotland in 2000 when Scotland beat England 19-13 at a rain-soaked Murrayfield to prevent England from achieving the Grand Slam. So Andy is someone who certainly knows what it takes to lead, be led and operate at the highest level, which is why I'm absolutely delighted to welcome this elite athlete to the Payroll Podcast. Andy, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? Yeah, well, a lot better after that introduction, Nick. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, great to be here. Delighted to do this podcast and share some of my experiences and stories. Fantastic. As my introduction stated, you obviously began your career in the elite world of professional sport. It'd be wonderful if you could just give the audience a bit more of a detailed overview beyond my introduction, if you will, uh, about your career, how it led from elite sport into the world of business or green room to boardroom, as we mentioned, just to give a bit more of a flavour of your expertise and your background. Okay, well, I mean, it, it started in Dundee, which is not a rugby city at all. I was capped when I was 20 years old, um, out of the second division. So it was very much thrown into the deep end. Rugby was in my family. My, my grandfather, George Ritchie, yeah, got capped for Scotland in 1932 against England. And I got my first cap uh, in 1992, almost 60 years to the day. And it was great. Grandpa hadn't been at Murrayfield for four years pre- previous to that game because of his, uh, his uh, age of, and ill health. But we managed to get him to Murrayfield that day, which was really really special and so um, rugby was gave me my life it's given me everything it's um it was a brilliant introduction to life and you know being part of a team is something that's really really important to me uh, that loyalty that that connection the responsibility that dependability that you've got to do your job to allow somebody else to do theirs 
has been fantastic for me. And so I enjoyed a, a, a really brilliant career. And I, I say that with pride, not with arrogance or, or boasting. It was, it was, I traveled the world. I met some great people, had some success, but rugby is also a sport that, if you, even if you don't get to the levels that I do, you can still get so much from it. Two of my best pals from Dundee, one of whom I started playing mini rugby at the age of six, so 47 years ago, wow. um, sorry, 44 years ago, I've just aged myself. <laughs> but I uh, met him there that first day and we're still best friends today. And they didn't achieve anything like I did, but they still got as much from rugby as I did because they got that camaraderie, they got that sense of community, that sense of connection, which is just fantastic. So so when I am, um, when it came to, to finish my rugby career I wasn't sad because I'd achieved everything that I could achieve or wanted to achieve and I got the opportunity to go to, to work for the BBC uh, initially at the Rugby World Cup in, in Australia in 2003 to work on Five Live and Radio Scotland and they booked me for five games but they didn't fly me out or they didn't put me up in the accommodation I did that myself because I saw this as a huge opportunity to get into to working for an institution like the BBC. And at the end of the World Cup in 2003, I was introduced to the, the head of BBC TV Rugby, who booked me for the following Six Nations in 2004. And I've done every Six Nations since. So a bit of investment on my side of it has, uh, has paid dividends on so many levels. So the media was, was a brilliant thing to get into. I loved it, and I still do. It's a great platform. It's a great way of, of staying involved in the international game for me but it's also taught me fantastic skills you know um, live television is all about communication it's about getting your point across it's been concise coherent and um, if you've only got 20 seconds to make a point you've only got 20 seconds you can't fluff in or fluff out you've got to be bang on and and most of the work I do is live so you know you can't get uh, 20 seconds into an answer from Gabby Logan and say Gabby could you could you ask me that question again I've got a much better <laughs> answer so it really sure. teaches you great skills. And so I've taken them into the, in the corporate world as well. And so when I came out of rugby, as I say, apart from the media, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And um, I worked for RBS Group for, for seven years, which was a fantastic experience to, to see how the, the corporate world operated and a big, big uh, player in that in, in RBS. And so but it was always a stepping stone for me because I always wanted to get into people development and leadership development. And Abstract gave me that opportunity. David Nicolich was a, um, a sole trader at the time and uh, he came to me and I went on a programme that, that he was running when I was with RBS. And that was uh, what led us to have various conversations and, and how we started up Abstract in its current form back in 2013. Amazing. I mean, what I love from that answer itself, and a great snapshot, so thank you for that, is everything you've said, you've said with real passion and real positivity as well, which is great. But um, there must have been some setbacks within that. And I'm sure we're going to find out more about those with the resilience piece. Before we find out where you've had to handle setback, it'd be great to understand how you would define resilience. Because obviously, we've already all got our own definitions. But for someone like yourself, who's worked in both professional sport and boardroom level positions, how would you define it? Yeah, resilience, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And it's, um, I mean, if you look at the um, definition in the dictionary, it's like the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. So it's all about being tough. And I think we can all resonate with that. I think we can all recognise that. But what I think is really interesting, if you look further into the definition, it, it, it takes it into talking about a substance or an object. And it's how a substance or an object spring back into shape. So the, the elasticity of any um, object or substance. 
Well, I think that now applies to, to human beings. I think we've got to, to show our elasticity. I think that's a, a real strong definition of resilience because in the last two years, we've been stretched and prodded and bent through COVID-19 and you know things like staying at home, lockdown. Remember that very first lockdown when we literally couldn't go out of our homes? You know, that was being twisted out of our norms, wasn't it? So I think you know, humans showing elasticity, that ability to recover, the key word in that is recover, Nick, so that, you know, it's not just uh, let things happen and and then you, you don't get back to where you were. You've got to recover. So there's got to be a conscious effort to, to get back to where you were. And so I think um, these last two years have taught us an awful lot about resilience. I think we've probably thrown that word around for years without really getting into what it means. But I think we've all had to show resilience of different forms in these last two years. So we've got a much better understanding of what it means. So I think you can take it into much deeper levels than we've probably ever looked at before yeah totally agree. i love the fact you talked about recovery as well i've talked about that in previous episodes of the, of the show where you have it a lot in the, in, the, in the elite world of sport whether it's elite or not whether you're training for something you have cycles and periods of recovery in order to perform at your best but actually in the business world we rarely give ourselves time to recover we're full on all the time particularly in the world of hr where suddenly they've had to become experts in covid-19 responses diversity and inclusion cultural change behaviors uh, remote working so they're in that using your word of elasticity they've certainly been stretched and actually not many of them have necessarily had the opportunity to recover. Um, I want to get into, in just a moment, you know, what, how resilience has changed over that period, but just honing in on that, that word that you mentioned there of recovery. Do you think, or are you seeing HR professionals or even business professionals in the boardroom taking the opportunity to reflect, to recover before we go back in? Or are, they, are you still seeing people head down and struggling to get their, lift their heads up? I guess it's mixed, Nick. There's there's some good examples of it. There's some examples where people could really benefit from taking that moment just to to reflect and and look back and appreciate you know what everyone's gone through to get to where we are now. And you know I think everyone's so desperate to get back to where we were, but you know do we want to get back to to normal? That's a term that's used all the time. Is it back yeah. to normal? We've been saying it's back to better because let's learn from these last few years of how how we've operated, how we've had to operate, how we've used technology in a positive way. Here we are using Zoom for for this session here, Nick. You know, before the two years ago, we'd have probably um, had to get together and yeah. uh, because or we would try to get together and do this face to face. And and suddenly there's the uh, the climate control and everything that's going on. That you know we travelled the world, didn't we, in in business, and we didn't think twice of it. Now now with technology, we know works um yeah we get gremlins and wi-fi fails us and we've all had those issues and you know you're on mute and all these comments <laughs> we've, uh, we've got so used to over the years but it's allowed us to connect in a very different way that i think has been a positive and so i worry that people want to are desperate to get back to what we did pre-covid take the best things of what we did before take the best things of what we've done the last two years and let's create a new better, a new environment, working environment, personal environment, try and keep a chasm between them. I think that sort of work from home and um, work-life balance has never been so true or more in focus than it's been because everyone was working from home and having to, to, to juggle all the various balls that they had. And so I think we've learned some really good things that, you know, your productivity can still be high, uh, even if you're working from home. Not in every case, but by and large, I think it has been. And some of that might be because you might take the dog for a walk at lunchtime or you might go out for just a walk in that, in that, or you might listen to a podcast where yeah. you're in an office environment. You wouldn't be doing that. So 
I think there's so many things to learn and we should not be so prescriptive when we go back to whatever going back is. And I think we just look at what the environment, the best environment that can be to get the best from our people. I'm wondering if I've had my head buried in the sand. That back to better, I've not heard that before. I don't feel like I should have done. I don't know if, you, if you've called it, Andy, but it's, it's a brilliant way to look at it and couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad you brought that in. And actually, I think it relates probably to my next question quite well, because resilience has often, you know, it's clearly changed, as we say, the way people are managing, you know, we've gone away from the old school way of doing things a little bit, which is all about being strong and ruthless. And we've come into a new world of, of managing staff, which is, you know, much more focused on, on diversity, inclusion, all the kind of things that abstract are, are focused on delivering for businesses. How, how would you say that it's changed? What are the key things that you've really identified in terms of how you're seeing businesses uh, react to the word resilience and change the way they manage as a result? Yeah, it's interesting because resilience has changed over the years. And, and this is why, because resilience is really built by the attitudes, behaviours and social values of that time. So resilience has had to change. And so, you know, you're right in saying it was very much sort of the old factors were, you know, about keeping your feelings in, you know, don't let on. It was seen as a weakness, wasn't it? If you asked for help, it was seen as a weakness. And that that's changed massively. And so, and it had to, because that was where people just bottled everything up and it was the classic stiff upper lip, you know, press on regardless. You don't show pain, you suffer in silence. And that was the that was so wrong. That's not what resilience. That's 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 burying your head in the sand and not absolutely accepting what's what's happening. So, so resilience over the years has changed. But resilience, it's almost been driven by almost the generation before, and what's happened to them. So let's use some some real big examples. So you know, you think about the industrial revolution when the children went to to work in the industrial revolution. Subsequent generations of children couldn't really complain about what they were going through because yeah. it was so much better than previous. Same with the First World War. Then the Second World War, where the men went to war and the women went to work. And so suddenly future generations couldn't complain about what they were faced with. So gender came into the whole um, resilience piece. And then there's things like Windrush generation. And, and so subsequent generations couldn't complain as much as what because the predecessors, what they had to face with. So resilience has had to change over the years because it's driven by the, the attitudes, behaviours and social values that exist at that time. So I think resilience, even bring it down in these two years that we when we went into the lockdown and when we've come out the other end or into COVID and out of COVID, you know, resilience has had to change as well. It's, it's, it's gone to a much different view of things. We're, we're asking people to, to open up a bit more, aren't we? We're asking them to, to share their concerns. You know, it's about managing emotions. And, and what's acceptable now is very different to what was acceptable maybe even two years ago, but certainly sure. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because our attitudes, our behaviours, our social values have changed to what they are now. So it's about being much more compassionate, being very well balanced. Yeah, I'd like to think there's, it's about having a bit of humour, Nick, as well. I, I remember I went to a webinar. No, it was a seminar. Remember those days when you actually could be in a room? Yeah, I was in a seminar and there was a guy from Google there. And uh, it was absolutely brilliant. And he, he talked about one of the, um, the main tenets in, in Google is that you don't have to be serious to deal with a serious situation. And we love that abstract. And it doesn't mean that you're frivolous. It doesn't mean that you don't take things seriously when it's right to be serious. 
but it's also it's good to have a bit of fun and you know we're in the learning business and you learn if you learn with fun it goes into a different part of your brain and it goes into a part of brain that you can recollect it so much easier so actually learning with fun is really important and so bringing just a bit of a levity into a situation can take some of the seriousness out of it and some of the the concern and worries that people might have and so you know the, the, some of the leadership traits that are required now are very different to what they were before we talk about strong and ruthless as you say and it was like you know that was the classic sort of command and control now it's about being say strong and considerate because leaders still need to be strong but they can have show consideration now and a bit of compassion and and it has to be sustainable as well now and and on on every level that we know that that word appeals to yeah and i couldn't agree more i think you mentioned a few words in there which i'd pick out and one of them as well is that collaboration is that trust and you said you know over the last two years it has changed. We've certainly accelerated some of those elements. The ability to work from home and be flexible has required leaders to be more trustful of their employees, to not be micromanaging in the same way. And I, I would typically associate micromanagement with a more ruthless approach to an outdated potential approach to management. And it's really nice to see that that huge shift occur. But of course, often the best leaders come to the front when we suffer a setback. Now, Often if you hear that, it's a well-known phrase, I'll phrase it exactly correct here, but we often say it's not the setback that defines us, but how we react to it. Now, bring it back to your career, Andy, it'd be great to have some examples of perhaps where you've had to face setback and, and what kind of tools and techniques we, we could apply for in a similar kind of situation to help us react to that setback in the right way. Like most sports people, you know, I've had to to suffer injury. And injury is where a lot of sports people have to show real resilience. And my example was that I am um, I tore my ACL ligament in my knee back in nineteen ninety-four, which was it was the Gaza injury at the time. Yeah. That's made famous by Gaza. And back then it was a potential career ender. You know, nowadays techni- technology, medical sciences improved so much that it's done keyhole, but it was a, a major surgery back then, Nick. So so this was a, a major potential threat to my career. And so so I was uh, had the injury in May 94. And so for me then it was about getting fit again. And so the, the big goal we had was that the Rugby World Cup was taking place in South Africa in, in, the, in the May of 1995. So it was 12 months hence. And so we we worked out that, that was my the, the the objective that was my goal to to get to go with Scotland to South Africa for that Rugby World Cup. But when I was sat in the hospital bed in Perth in Scotland where I got the the operation and uh, my physio was there and my family and we we set out with, with this the surgeon we we said that was the end goal. But when I was sitting there with a mangled knee it didn't seem achievable. It was demoralizing to even think about it. So we broke that ultimate goal back into achievable, small little steps. And so, you know, if I was playing for Scotland in the Rugby World Cup in uh, 1995, I had to be playing for Bath in and around the March, April that year. So the first goal was to bend my knee five degrees. Wow. 10 degrees and then 15 degrees and so on. And then it was to start walking, jogging, running, sprinting, taking contact, etc. So what that meant is you this long journey that you had from being in a hospital bed to playing international rugby, which when you were in this hospital bed, that didn't look achievable in any way whatsoever. You brought it right way down to little achievable goals 
that you could just tick them off. It was a positive experience. If you didn't achieve one or you, you had a setback, you just went back to the previous one and you started off again, but it was a little small journey to make. And so every time you went along the, the timeline of these all small achievable goals, it was taking you one step closer to the ultimate goal. And so this was all, it was all on track. I got back playing for Bath in the in the, the right time as my, my third game into my uh, comeback and it was all going well. The Scotland coach and the, the, the selectors came down to Bath to watch me play and at half time in that third game they decided that I was fit and healthy and I would I was going to South Africa with Scotland so in in that moment um, objective achieved but they didn't tell me that they didn't take me off at half time um, and seven minutes into that second half I tore the ligaments in my other knee oh no Oh, so I wasn't suddenly, seeing. I didn't see that coming. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and so suddenly, this is where resilience really kicks in because then it was back to square one. So that goal was gone. wasn't going to go to the Rugby World Cup, but it just meant I started a different set of goals and getting back through the rehab again. Those dark days when you've got to to train on your own and do all that individual re- rehab. Your know, rugby is a, a team sport, so you get to play with other people. Unfortunately, an injury is an individual sport. You do it yourself. And okay, every so often there's other people who are injured at the same time, but you do a lot of rehab on your own. So, so it was back to square one. So that's my story of resilience because I, I had to show incredible resilience to get back from that. And I did. And I got back from the, the Leicester injury that it was and I got back playing, you know, not long after the uh, 1995 World Cup. So, Amazing. you know, sport is littered with examples. You know, Andy Murray. Andy Murray, you know, one of my heroes, uh, most people is, uh, you know, what he achieved was amazing. But he had to go through a lot of setbacks, didn't he, to, to yeah. before he eventually won Wimbledon in, in 2013. And you know, the year before, he's uh, he's crying after with Sue Barker on TV after he lost. And yet that showed incredible resilience to come back to, to win. So, you know, Kath Granger, I think, is another great example. The Olympic roar. You know, she went to, they started off in the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and you know, she got a silver medal that year and probably was quite happy with that. But she wanted a gold. And then 2004, she got another silver. 2008, you know, she, they were red hot favourites with Anna Watkins and the Chinese boat picked them on the line. And so yet another silver medal. And so she was desperate for the gold. Now, she could easily have chucked it and said, it's not for me but she wanted to, to go again and remember going again is not just one more 2000 meter race yeah. it's four year cycle of training and all the sacrifice that goes with it but she she decided to do it she committed to it and then that glorious moment in london 2012 when she got the gold medal so you know there's just two examples that just spring to mind but sport is littered with it but but you know, there's so many other areas of uh, we've all seen it. We've all seen resilience. Maybe we don't recognise it as resilience, but we've all seen it in the last two years when we've all been put into these situations that we've been in. Let me ask a, a question, Andy. I've just, it come to mind in that great example. I wasn't expecting that the, the second hit to come in. With everything that you've achieved post rugby, you know, your, your career in media, your career now as CEO of Abstract. If you had the opportunity to change that second half, those seven minutes, and would you take the opportunity to say, I wish I hadn't got injured? Or actually, has it helped you become the person that you are now, do your response to that resilience? And I know it's a hypothetical question, but I'm interested to know because of what you've achieved beyond sport now, whether that, that's impacted it. So it, it is a good question, Nick, because I'm asked a lot of times, is there any regrets? And I've got no regrets. I genuinely have no regrets in my rugby career. There's moments I'd, I wish I'd done differently. There's moments I wish I'd played better. There's moments I wish I hadn't missed a tackle. You know, would I have wanted to not be injured in seven minutes in the second half of that game for Bath? Absolutely, because 
I missed out in a World Cup. Uh, I was in the 1991 training squad with Scotland. Um, yeah, I was 19 years old at this stage, and they went with two scrum halves, only two in the squad of 26, and I missed out. And everyone said at the time, well, don't worry, you'll get the next three, maybe even four World Cups. And then 95, it happened that I had that injury that I've just talked about. 99, I was injured, and then I retired just before 2003. So the one thing I didn't do in my rugby career was play in a Rugby World Cup. I missed that. So I think as much as I wouldn't change my rugby career in its entirety, if you like, in, in, in the in the big sense of that uh, definition, I'd love to play in the World Cup. And if I hadn't injured uh, myself in the second half of that game with Bath, then I'd have gone to South Africa. Sure. But who knows now? I could have picked up an injury at any other time in training. So that's why I don't look back on any regret. Uh, I do wish I'd played in a Rugby World Cup. We've, we've talked a lot about unexpected change, things that can happen, a second injury, which, you know, really changes all the things you've, you've been working towards. We've had a pandemic, which would have impacted pretty much everybody and what they, you know, the goals they had at that particular time, it changed the way we work. How does constant change affect resilience in your yeah. experience? Yeah, I, I would uh, recommend listening to this to look at the, the Kubler-Ross change curve, which is very well used in, in HR um, areas because, I think it's something that we've we've really had to look at and, and adapt to very quickly or, or even used to understand what we've all gone through with, with COVID because it talks about shock and then denial and then it goes down to frustration, depression, and then it sort of the, the curve bottoms out and then it comes up with experiment and decision and then into integration with the new ideas. And I think that is it's a fantastic model. And it actually replicated what we did with COVID, wasn't it? Because yeah. there was shock and denial at the first, wasn't it? We we knew there was this something happening out in China, and then it came into Italy first, wasn't it? And then and then we thought, well, will it come to us? And then when it did, there was there was a bit of denial to start with, certainly frustration, and then there was depression. I know depression is a very strong word, and we won't overuse it, but I think at some point we were all probably feeling a bit depressed about what was happening in the in the world when we're in lockdown. But then you start to bottom out, and then you start to experiment. And I think this is the the key bit to to help as leaders. You've got to really help people spark motivation when you're in that depression area, and with experiments about developing capability and and bringing people out. And I think. You know, as a as a society, I think we sort of wallowed, we sort of swung back and forth from that depression to experiment in the bottom of that change curve, just as we tried things and got setbacks and, you know, the more restrictions were brought in, they were lifted and then they were brought back again. You know, there's so many examples of that. And so I think change... You know, resilience and change are, are absolutely intrinsically linked because you've got to react, as I said, you know, resilience is, is built by the attitudes, behaviours and social values at the time. So our attitude, our behaviours in lockdown meant that our resilience had to reflect that. And so I think change is, you know, there's, there's only one constant in life at the moment is change, isn't it? Sure. And so I think you've got to react to the environment you, that you're in. So that Kubler-Ross change curve, I think, has been a fantastic model. And sadly, if anyone's gone through the, the, the green process it's very similar to the the grieving process that you start you know a bit of shock denial and you come down you bottom out but then you come out the other end as well so i think it's a really good model to understand just where we've come from and the, the different areas that we've gone through emotionally to to get through this change have you ever asked yourself how can i recruit payroll staff effectively please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet 
Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. I'll try and find a link to that, to, to that as well for those listening. If you want to go to the show notes, hopefully you can find a direct link through to find out more about that. I know obviously a, a CEO of, of Abstracts, you've become real experts. You've honed in on resilience as being something that can really help modern workforces. If we help build this, you develop five pillars that I'd love if, if you could just expand on a bit more detail. But in addition to just expanding on those five pillars, Andy, it would also be great to know if you feel that resilience, these five pillars can be applicable across changing room elite sport do they differ then if you go into the green room media environment they differ again in the boardroom or are they are they all you know cross industry cross sector i i think they're cross sector i think they're cross industry they're there for to everyone to use in their own environment they're applicable there's two things that we always try to apply in in our work with abstracts it's got to be interesting and it's got to have application you know, it has to be the anyone who comes in a program, anyone comes in a webinar, goes on any of our master classes we do. It, the, the two things are it should be interesting and it should have application. And so, when we were looking at this uh, subject matter, we had those two things in mind. And so, especially the application. So, so the first pillar we we look at before for modern day resilience is situational awareness. And it's every situation is different, you know. And so you know, we've got that ability as human beings to for we've got choice and we, we can choose how to react in certain situations. And so you know, that's what separates us from the animal kingdom. Some of that choice can be conscious, some of it's unconscious. But it is the response. And, and you, you mentioned earlier, Nick, and it's, it's, it's not what happens to us that truly define our destiny, but it's how we choose to react to what happens to us. So it's really important. We'll make good choices, we'll make bad choices, but you, you've got and you've got to learn from, from them. So and there's a line that we use here, which I think is really important, is that failure is an event, not a person. So just because you've maybe failed in, in one environment, maybe you've made a, the wrong choice, that doesn't mean that you are then a failure and you're not going to make better choices elsewhere. And too often we, we see people who get down because they've made a bad decision or they've made a poor judgment. But the next time, in a different situation, they're going to make a different call, a different judgment, a different choice. So failure is an event, not a person. And I think that's really, really important to allow people to, to really sort of take back and reflect Reflect, you know what what the situations happened. You know, again in sport we do this very well. We do it very quickly on the pitch. Nick, you make a choice. You you change a tactic, and has it worked? And it has worked. Keep doing it. If it hasn't, you've got to think about what else you can do. And that's that's happening almost um, instantaneously. But you've got to have that ability to. Um, reflect on what's just happened and then use that evidence to define your next choice, whatever that is. But just because you've made one bad one doesn't mean the next one's going to be bad as well. So so situational awareness is uh, is really important. That's the, that's the first one that we have. And uh, Quick question on, on that, just because I think it, I, I'd be interested to know if you feel it differs between sport and boardroom, which is in sport, I think failure is an accepted thing that we, we have to be quick to accept our failures. They're, they're obvious, they're transparent. You miss a tackle, everyone can see it. You miss a goal, you, you don't, whatever. In the world of business, though, do you find that, that leaders are as accepting of their failures or is there often a, a, you know, a wall you have to 
take it apart and say, this is a failure. You need to accept it in order to learn from it. Yeah, well, there's a saying that you've got to know how to lose to know how to win. And I think that's so much more applicable in sport or easy to apply in sport. Sure. And believe me, having played for Scotland, I know all about, <laughs> about losing. But we, we, we won as well. So I think in business, Nick, it's failure is a word that people shy away from in business because it's quite profound. It's very impactful. In sport, it's a matter of fact, isn't it? You know, England played France on Saturday night there. France won, England lost. That's for everyone yeah. to see. There's a, there's a scoreline that the tells you who's won and who's lost. In business, you might say that there's a bottom line when it comes to uh, profitability or wherever it might be. But in general, you it's not as defined. It's not as black and white as winning and losing. But I think as leaders, you've got to recognise when, and you've got to look back, you've got to do a quick assessment. You know, if you, if you just keep going forward and not listening to what's happened or, or not speaking to people who have been involved in a process to learn if it can be better the next time, then I think you're failing. I think leaders have got to accept um, and should accept that they're not going to get it right all the time. There's no yeah. one on this planet ever does that. So learning from your mistakes is, is really important. Making the same mistakes again is what you're trying to avoid. And I see this quite a lot in business, to be honest, Nick, that, that people will keep making the same mistakes because they don't stop and reflect and change their, their view or their position or their attitude or wherever that might be. There's many ways that that can manifest itself. And they don't, they don't look at the signs. And so self-awareness is really, really important. It's really important to understand you know, where your, your blind spots are. And some people just are this positive freak of nature. They just keep looking forward or they don't want to look back. But you've got to. You've got to have that quick moment of reflection and assessment and work out what's just happened, why it's happened, how can we do it better, what worked, what didn't work, what will we stop doing, what will we start doing. Now, that doesn't have to be a formal sit-down process every time. But it, there has to be a bit of thinking time to recognise sure. um, what's just happened. And of course, that's what sport teams do so well. You'll get back into the you know the, the analysis room afterwards and, and, and really look at it in detail. Perhaps don't do that as much in the world of business. Maybe we can learn from the world of sport in that regard. I was also really impressed as well that you picked up the France result rather than the Scotland beating England, which is what <laughs> I was expecting. But yeah, but t- tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the second to, to fifth pillars. So the, the, the next one's uh, mindfulness. And, you know, that is something that we've, uh, I think, mental mental well-being, mental health has really come to the fore, hasn't it, in uh, in lockdown. And I think mindfulness is, is really important. This is about, you know, we've got a very complicated brain, but, uh, you know, 11 million bits of info come into our brain every second, but we can only effectively process 40 bits per second. So, you know, there's so much going up here that we just, we can't deal with. So it's all about, and this sounds very scientific here, Nick, but, but, but hear me out. It's about compartmentalising your cognitive load. And so different types of work use different parts of your brain. So your left brain, right brain, analytical brain is, is very much your, your left. The creative is your right brain. So it's really important when you go from one activity to another, you, give a, you, you almost switch off. And that can be for a short period of time or a long period of time, but it literally can be for two or three seconds as you move from one activity to another to be able to tune in and tune out. And this is what I use, again, go back into my sporting world. This is what sports people are very good at because if you're tuned in all the time, then you're just, you'll, you'll, you frazzle, you burn. Yeah. 
Because, you know, if you think, let's use rugby as the example with the Six Nations just finishing. If you, that France-England game on, on Saturday, the French boys who were playing for a Grand Slam, if they came into camp on the Sunday before and they were just tuned into what was happening at eight o'clock kickoff on that Saturday night, you know, they play the game so many times in the week, they would just burn themselves out. So what sport people do very well is this tune in, tune out. So when they have to be tuned in, so when they're training, when they're in team meetings, then obviously when the game itself, they're absolutely tuned in. But when there's moments when they can tune out, they do that, they take that. And that means that you you go for a walk, you listen to a podcast, you listen to music, you play pool, whatever it might be. And I think this is something that in business we need to do so much better. Just take that moment to tune in, tune out. So you're not on it all the time. You're just switched off. I had a coach that always used to talk about press the switch, you know, literally flick the switch. We're in right, we're in preparation mode now. Flick the switch. And you almost you know, you almost yeah. were, were flicking a switch in your brain to switch on to to that. So mindfulness, if you if you keep going without stopping and just keep going in the in the, in the same way, you, you'll just get into burnout. Yeah, actually, it's a nice visual clue as well for the visual learners. The switch on, switch off. You know, definitely. And so, and, the, and then the, the next pillar, Nick, is, is very closely linked to that. It's about self care. It's about looking after yourself. And so, you know, and this is not. I mean, when I've talked about this um, in webinars that we've run. You know, I, I don't prescribe what somebody should eat, what they, how should they should sleep, or what their exercise is, because everyone's different. But everyone is a—it's an engine, so you need to put in the right fuel to get the the output coming out. And so, and it's relying on the the friends and support mechanism you had. But but here's and here's something I think there's so many businesses have got this wrong in lockdown and actually beforehand. And this is about when you go from one task to another, it's having these detachment breaks to to allow the the brain to to have a rest because every situation requires a different focus and and we we have naturally peaks and troughs of of energy and and these are called ultradian rhythms but you don't need to understand what that is it just means that you've got that ability to focus for a certain period of time and if you just go from one zoom meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting or even when we're face to face go from one meeting room to the next and you, you look back and reflect and you think well halfway through that second session now uh, my, my effectiveness sort of started to wane a bit. And then by the third, I was my head was just mush. Yeah. That's because we our mental focus, Nick, is only typically about 90 minutes long. So if you're going past that 90 minutes, your brain's going to start to just switch off and you're not going to be as effective. And as I say, if you go into people's uh, diaries, look at they go from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting. I, you know, I, we we go on Zoom calls with some of our clients or some of our prospects, and we'll get to the end of there, and they say, "Sorry, Andy, I need to go. I've got another meeting now." They're taking no break between them. So by stepping away to reset the energy, to reset the focus and the attention of the next meeting, and that can only be for only needs to be a few minutes, Nick. That means your effectiveness in that next meeting is going to be so much greater and so much better. So you actually, throughout the day, if you take one meeting out of your diary and use that time to to spread the rest of your meetings out, allowing you to have these these detachment breaks um, to allow you to reset focus, I reckon your working day would be so much more productive. Couldn't agree more. Actually, we've looked at some data on this from a recruitment perspective. So we obviously get clients who want to you know, interview uh, candidates we put forward. And often they'll want to do all the interviews in one day. We'll be back to back seven interviews now each time. And we know just from looking at our own data, whoever goes in in fifth, sixth and seventh slot, 
they're just not going to have the same opportunity as those that went in first. And we'll also look spread it over two days. A, you won't realize how exhausting it is to interview seven people back to back, but also your focus by the end isn't there. Things will get missed. The candidate won't feel the same way. So we actually see that from a recruitment perspective happen all the time because you hit that limit. You just hit that limit and people forget how exhausting it is. Meetings are almost like badge of honours. It's like, let's fill everyone's yeah. day with, uh, with meetings. And it's it's so the wrong attitude. It's so the wrong process. And so just having those breaks is really important. But then, and then a link to that, our next pillar, Nick, is positive relationships. And that's, you know, I think there's there's a lot of mood hoovers out there, isn't there, that will yeah. just suck the life out of yeah. uh, any situation. So, you know, I say to people who speak to don't be that mood hoover. And it, and then if you recognise a mood hoover, try and avoid them as much as possible. <laughs> just, you know, have positive relationships. Are, you know, it's really important. It shows the collaboration's good, you're, the compassion. You work much better together. And it's, it's having that uh, ability to understand what everyone's going through you know i think compassion is something we've all learned isn't it in the in the last two years of, of lockdown we've needed to be much more compassionate and there's there's something that i really hope we we take or we keep in the the, the working world the corporate world when we get out of back to better or, or go back to better so that compassion is really important so yeah, having positive relations yeah, they've got to be realistic as well um you know you can't just be uber positive all the time there's got to be realism in there but you know i think Positivity is a really important part of, of resilience because you, you can get focused on the negatives too easy. And, uh, you know, I, I remember I was, Liz McColgan was a, a great runner um, who won the, the world championship yeah. 10,000 meter back in 1991. And um, she worked with a sports psychologist called Jack Black. And um, and it was all about he, his big thing. And I did, when I was in the Scotland rugby squad, we we had a, a session with Jack. And it was, uh, it was fascinating because if anyone asked him how he is, the normal answer, how are you doing? I was saying, yeah, not bad. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, could be better. You know, you know, still alive. And it's all these sort of negative connotations. And your brain only hears certain words, doesn't it? So if you say not bad, all it hears is bad. And so Jack got the Scotland team and he got Liz to, to speak really positive. So if you were to ask Liz how she's doing, it's like fantastic, brilliant. And it's just yeah. little things like that um, were, were great. And so she had a really positive relationship. And so, and it's all about a positive mindset. So, so having positive relationships are, are really important. And then the, the final one, Nick, for the, the, the five pillars is purpose. And so, you know, understanding what your purpose is, is understanding what your why is. You know, why is really important, why you get up in the morning, why you go to work, why you do certain things, why you drive to here to, to meet somebody, whatever it is, your why is your really, it's your core, it's your inner being. And that, if you understand your why, then you understand yourself. That is a, a really good place to be. There's a lot of people doesn't who don't understand their why. They don't understand why they do something. And this is more about, you know, than picking up a paycheck. This is your real, what really motivates you. And, uh, you know, they say if you, if you love what you do for a living, it doesn't feel like you're working for a living, doesn't it? And so if you if you can work on your purpose and your why, and so that meant, you know, why we were doing certain things in lockdown. It was quite good to understand, wasn't it? And so having that purpose is really important. You know, having that ability to, to know what you're getting to and having the goals. If you, if you don't know your final destination, any road will get you there so if you have goals that you're trying to achieve you know getting back to to being fully fit in the in the example i used earlier nick if i if i just left that up to chance who knows where we would have got but we had a real clear direction of, of travel that we wanted to go in so you know your purpose keeps you on track it keeps you 
even if you get pushed off track, which you will, and this is again part of the resilience. You know, your purpose can be challenged, and you can be you can be knocked off your uh, your, your your direction of travel. Purpose will bring you back. Understanding your why is really important. So, so these are the the, the five. We've got situational awareness. We've got mindfulness, self care, uh, positive relationships, and purpose. Amazing. I couldn't agree more with the why. I'm really glad you gave that. And that was one of your pillars, which I didn't know until I asked you the question. I'm a huge believer in the the power of why and understanding that. And interestingly, when he talks about that positive uh, Jack Black response, it's actually quite hard to say, I feel fantastic without it automatically lifting your your own mood anyway. You know, just saying the word lifts you because because of the connotation things associated with it. So I can totally get that as well. Of course, today we focus a lot on talking about resilience, how to build a resilient workforce, some of your own challenges, Andy, which is really great to understand. But Abstract, of course, do a number of things to support businesses. You've got a number of programs that you, you offer. You've got you know, three key areas, I guess, which is kind of career management for underrepresented groups, inclusive leadership, and helping to build a modern business fit for today's social objectives. I love some of the work you're doing. I mean, anyone that's hopefully, if you've been listening to previous episodes and this isn't your first, we do an awful lot in terms of trying to promote um, equality, diversity, and inclusion in the workforce. Very, very current at the moment. A lot of business taking this subject matter very, very seriously, which is which is fantastic. And of course, some of your programs are very much focused on creating inclusive leaders and inclusive managers of tomorrow across all levels of an organisation. It's not limiting it to within the HR or L&D worlds. What does this process involve, though, and why do you think? You know, as CEO of Abstract, I guess, that cultivating a, a culture of inclusive leadership now is absolutely essential for businesses to take on. And why should they be investing in learning and development in these areas, maybe using a firm like Abstract to help them achieve some of those, uh, some of those objectives? So your, your people are your, your biggest asset. They, they absolutely are. Any business's greatest asset is their people. And investing in their in your people is really important you get not just the improvement in the in the development of them but it's the improvement of their mindset it's improvement of their loyalty there's there's so many positive ways things you get out of the back of investing in your people and improving performance through people is a line that we use and i think that's it just allows companies to to really invest as i say in their biggest asset which is their people and then you know being inclusive is too often for for years that we we were quite just set in our ways of how we how we operated, and I think now we we recognise that there's there's so many different areas that we need to to look at, and you know there's the underrepresented groups that for so long were underrepresented and they didn't have a voice, but now that voice it, um, needs to be heard, but it needs to be listened to as well, and that is that's for me what real inclusive leadership is is asking that question, and even if you come back to to sort of mindfulness and well-being, like we, we we ask our leaders to to ask that question, how are you doing? But they've got to a mean the question, but more importantly, b listen to the answer and do something with it. And so you can you can give a lot of definition about what does inclusive leadership means. It means you're listening to everyone. You're giving everyone an opportunity, irrespective of their faith, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation, their gender, whatever it might be, you're giving their ability for their voice to be heard. And that there's so many things that come off it. So whether you're doing an EDI program, or whether it's a sales uh, culture, or whether it's a health and well-being, or whether it's um, judgment and decision making, it's all under the banner of being an inclusive company and inclusive leadership. So it's got many levels to it, but it's just in, the the important part is the inclusive side of it, include including everyone and every type of demographic into your strategy, your HR strategy, your L&D strategy, 
even just your strategy as a business is so important. And for me, that's what inclusive leadership is all about. Fantastic. For those interested, you can probably imagine I'm looking at corporate websites on a very daily basis, both in my work professionally, but also as a, as a podcast host. For those interested in finding out more, I have to say the abstractuk.co.uk site, and there will be a link in the show notes to go straight through, is really an excellent one. You've got lots more information about their programs, their webinars, but also there's a fantastic blog section there. Some articles written by Andy and and his colleagues all about unconscious bias, inclusive leadership. There's so much to get your teeth into. So please do take a look at that website. I say there will be a link in the show notes, abstractuk.co.uk, but I really do highly recommend the site in particular. It's fantastic as a resource, if nothing else. Now, what we're going to do, Andy, is just open the HR L&D vault. Opening the L&D vault. Some quick, short, short fire questions, uh, which uh, hopefully you can give us some insight to. Uh, question one is this. In hindsight, what is one thing you now know that you wish you'd known when you began your career? You, you learn more as you go through. I, I was a better rugby player the day I retired than the day I, I started. I was better, better on TV you know, now than I was 20 years ago when I started. And I think every day I'm, uh, I'm learning in, in the corporate world as well. So I think, you know, learning is uh, and getting better striving to get better is something that i would i would always encourage you know i always say why are uh, messi and ronaldo the best two footballers on the planet it's because they train the hardest they've achieved all they've achieved do they stop training and say well i'm done now i, I can't get any better they're always striving to get better and i think you know i think i look back and i said earlier i don't have any regrets in my career but i could have been better and i could have t- trained harder and so you know, I think it's not so much in business training harder or working harder, it's working smarter. And so I think that's really, really important. So I'm not sure that's answered your question. Yeah, great answer. And actually, it's a good example of Ronaldo there. Everyone, you know, started to get a little bit of criticism recently. Is he passed it? He comes back and scores a hat-trick against my team, Spurs. So yeah, it just shows they're never, they're never done when you're at that, that level. And um, if you could give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? Our mission is to make the corporate world a fairer and better place. And I think that sounds quite grandiose. Our purpose is to change people's lives. And that again, that sounds quite big. But if somebody comes on our programs or somebody reads our website, reads a blog that you've just mentioned, and they, they do something different, one thing different as a result of it, then their life has changed. So it really works on, on that level. So for me, it is that it's the incremental gains. It's, a, it's much easier to change 100 things by 1% than one thing by 100%. I think that is, is, is so true. And so it doesn't take a lot to make a small change to make a big difference. Yeah, no, love that. And, you know, nothing wrong with dreaming big. I think everyone should dream big. Big goals are good. That's what gives, gives, us, gives us huge direction. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give a younger you just starting out in this new world of work? So I got, I got given um, two bits of advice by a player who was quite experienced in the Scotland team at the time. And one was rugby related and one was life related, I would say. And I understood the rugby one. I didn't understand the other one, but I knew it was important. But I've applied it ever since, and I'll share it with you now, Nick. So the first one was the rugby one. It was quite easy to understand. He said, Andy, every time you cross the white line, you give 100% because they're always watching, they're always judging you, you're always on show, and they'll always make a comment of it. So cross the white line, whether it be training or playing, you give 100%. And Nick, I had many limitations as a player, but one thing I was, if you speak to any player I I played with, I was committed. So that was something I could understand and I could apply immediately. The second one he said, 
was, and it was a bit, I had to, to, to dig a bit deeper with what he meant by it. He said, Andy, if you give two minutes of goodwill, you'll receive two weeks in return. And I said, well, you've got to explain that. And so what he meant by that, and he used one example, is that when you're in a, you know, international rugby team, you go to these dinners where you sit down at a table with there's nine, nine guests and you sit down and you don't know anyone there. He said, don't try and remember all nine people, but remember the people either side of you that you'll be speaking to throughout the dinner. And then the next time you see them, just go up to them and say, hi, Nick, Sandy Nicholas, I sat next to you at the Scotland-England game. Uh, thank you so much for your hospitality last night, that night. It was brilliant. He said, if you do that, you'll not believe how much goodwill you'll, you'll get in return. And so I said, I was 20 years old when he told me that, but I clocked it, I banked it. And I've probably applied that, Nick, through the last 30, 30 years. It was 1992 that I got there when Kenny said this to me. So I've applied that. So giving two minutes of goodwill, you'll receive two weeks in return. Love that. It's quite profound. Brilliant. Brilliant response. Uh, I might ask one more if I've got time at the end, but one more, the last one of this part of the section really is, what's the guiding principle or behaviour you see in every great leader that you've personally worked with? Humility. I think it's really strong. There's so many leaders that they're too focused on on maybe their targets or what they're trying to achieve. That they need to have that that humility, that understanding. I mean, humility comes in many ways, but I think if somebody if a, if a leader shows humility, which means that they don't get everything right, they recognise yeah. that, they delegate well, they, they recognise that they're not the expert and in, in every field and again a great leader someday will get good people around them and um and just that you know emotional intelligence is is a huge thing i mean i've it's always something that uh, i think i understood emotional intelligence before i understood what it was you know i captained um a lot of sides when i was young and i i realized without recognizing this was sort of emotional intelligence that that using one leadership style communication style in a changing room with 14 other players you'd elicit the same response from 14 different individuals you had to tailor it accordingly so so emotional intelligence is an absolute given for for any leader but i do think humility and having that ability to understand when that you're not the expert in everything yeah delegation is really important and admitting when you don't get things right. So humility, I think, is a really strong trait to have. No, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant response. One more question I want to add, which I wouldn't usually ask, but I think it's very rare I get such an elite sportsman on the podcast. So from your perspective, what has been your greatest achievement to date? It's quite easy to define in my rugby career. Uh, there's, there's two moments that uh, stood out in my career, and I, this is, I differentiate between an achievement and highlight. Okay. Um, the greatest achievement was captaining Bath to the Heineken Cup in 1998. We were the first British and Irish club, uh, side to do that. And um, Bath, the quintessential English club, that, as a Scotsman, I was very proud to, to be the captain that year. And, and Bath had dominated the English rugby game, but and all, we'd always thought ourselves as the best team in Europe, but we didn't have the, the vehicle to, to prove that. The Heineken Cup gave us that, and we achieved it, which was fantastic. We won nine games, or we played nine games, won eight of them to, to win the Heineken Cup. So that was a as an achievement. It was it was the, the greatest. As a highlight, when I was captain of Scotland in 2000, you know, England had played four games, lost, uh, won four games. We'd played four, lost four. No one gave us a chance. We hadn't won the Six Nations, the Calcutta Cup against England for 10 years. And I got the uh, unique honour of being the first Scotsman ever to lift the Calcutta Cup at Murrayfield Stadium. Because it was, before that, it was only ever presented at the dinner in the evening. So that's a pretty cool um, 
um, start to have in my, my career. But, you know, th- those those were easy. They were tangible. You know, there's lots of other things I'm proud of. Working for 20 years in the BBC is something that, um, you know, every year there's another um, raft of people retiring from the game of rugby who yeah. on the door for the BBC and I managed to keep going for 20 years, which has been great. My wife and children are a, a source of pride. Uh, of course they are. And, uh, and, uh, and what we're doing abstract is, is, has been something that has given me immense pride as well. We're, we're almost at the end of our 10 year, our first 10 year journey, which, um, you know, it's been highs and lows within that. You know, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that everyone that's interacted with Abstract has had a positive experience by and large. And uh, and they, when they come on our programmes, we have changed their lives. So, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate, Nick, to, to have had three careers, two of which are continuing. Uh, they've all been interlinked. Uh, they've all made me the person I am. And so... When you when you can take the bits from all of that and look back on a on a sense of pride, it's um it's a nice place to be. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you talk today on the show, Andy. Thank you ever so much for joining me on the HRLND podcast and uh, really insightful. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. I'm a huge sports fan anyway. And um, I was at, as I mentioned to you off air, I was at the Twickenham game recently to watch England beat Wales so, uh, in the rugby. So um, no, thank you ever so much for taking your time to join me. For those that want to find out more about abstracts and the work you do, I will, of course, put a link to your website in our, in our show notes. Any other uh, locations you'd like to direct any traffic to, uh, Andy? No, that, that's that's the easiest one. There, we we're um, on LinkedIn. We've got uh, I've got a session tomorrow night on uh, five o'clock. LinkedIn live tomorrow night with Martin Johnson. We're doing Amazing. lessons from the the Six Nations. So uh, we're looking not just at the rugby element. We're looking at the leadership on how can we take some of the leadership examples, good and bad, that we've seen in the last seven weeks, and apply them into business. So if you're free, join us at LinkedIn live at five o'clock on the on the abstract LinkedIn page. Fantastic. And of course, if you are a payroll professional listening to this podcast and you need support with a specific payroll related vacancy, please do get in touch with either myself or any of my wonderful colleagues at JJ Payroll Recruitment. You can catch us at jgarecruitment.com or indeed reach out to me direct through the episode notes for this show. My email is nick at jgarecruitment.com. My number can be found there as well. Just leaves me to say another huge thank you to Andy Nickel for joining me today to discuss a subject which couldn't be more relevant for the payroll community, which is all about building modern day resilience. And we all know you've had your resilience tested significantly over the past 24 or 48 months, should we say, during a recent pandemic. And I'm sure it'll be tested again in the future. So well done to all of you for keeping the world paid during some really challenging times. You, I'm sure, are already all experts in the world of resilience, but I think it's been a fantastic exploration into this subject area with Andy Nickel today. So thank you ever so much for joining me. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Payroll Podcast real soon. Many thanks. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.